This episode of Crisis Talks is brought to you by my new book, Boom or Bust, Survive and Thrive During Crisis. 30% of proceeds of the book are being donated to the Emergency Services Foundation, which is dedicating to supporting the mental health of our responders who protect us every day. Go to www.leftofboom.com.au forward slash boom dash or dash bust. When crisis strikes, organisations face a battle of survival under intense scrutiny. How they are judged depends on the performance of individuals and teams huddled in war rooms, working to provide a coherent response under maximum pressure. In Crisis Talks, I aim to capture the insights of people who have responded to a crisis and their stories of leadership, courage and resilience in the face of extreme adversity. Their lessons will help us all be better prepared to preempt and respond proactively and with confidence. My name is Grant Chisnell and this is Crisis Talks. We often draw inspiration from the exploits of on-field leaders in sport, whether it be on the rugby field, the football field, the netball court, or in individual endeavours. In this episode of Crisis Talks, we go behind the scenes into the administration of the Australian Football League. We speak with the Executive General Manager, Corporate Affairs, Government Communications, Brian Walsh, and talk about those crucial decisions that they made during COVID over the last 18 months. This is a rare insight into some of the challenges that present an administration of sport and the way that they go about their decision-making. Brian, welcome along to Crisis Talks. Uh, thanks very much for that, Grant. Uh, pleasure to be here. Now, give us a bit of background on yourself. So journalist background initially and then into this corporate affairs field, how does it sort of emerge for you over your career? Uh, that's right. I started as a, a reporter back at the Sun News Pictorial uh, way back when. Uh, the early 80s and sort of did a mix of sport and general news and then found my way to police rounds. And uh, during that sort of covered things like um, Hoddle Street, Queen Street, um, Wall Street killings, you know, Mr. Cruel, who was uh, around at that time and sort of a fair bit of bushfires, floods, armed robberies, you you name it. And then went for a couple of years to Tourism Victoria to work in communications and media, came back to the Herald Sun for another seven and a half years which was a mix of, again, police reporting, investigative work, and a lot of time in sort of senior editorial roles on the chief of staff desk and ended up as managing editor of sport across the Sydney Olympics. Went and worked for a little startup for five years, found my way to the AFL for almost six years as uh, their first corporate affairs manager. Went over the road to work for NAB, looking after their communications and corporate affairs for three and a half years, and then um, set up Bastion Reputation Management, where I came into contact with your good self on a number of jobs. And then after four and a half years there, we came back to the AFL about two years ago or just over two years ago as Executive General Manager of Corporate Affairs, Government and Communication. So similar role, but just bringing together sort of government and media comms for the AFL, but a lot of issues management and the occasional crisis management in there as well. Probably an ongoing rolling crisis, really, what we've seen over the last two years, and we'll sort of dig into that a bit more as part of the overall AFL COVID response. But thinking back on all those years, what's some of those sort of formative things that's really set you up for success today? 
I think I sort of found myself in in various guises, particularly in journalism, of you know being involved in crisis moments or or sort of heavy crimes. You know, I was on the desk during uh, Port Arthur. You know, there's a few big sort of events that you sort of had to deal with. And and I think in newspapers, you have to sort of deal quickly with information, find out what's happening, and then sort of make a lot of decisions really quickly as to the coverage that you're going to provide about sort of getting photographers in those days, whereas it's video and everything now. So there's a lot of that sort of having to make a lot of decisions quickly, dealing with events where people, uh, there was high emotion often having to go into people's homes to talk to sort of relatives of people involved in various tragedies and sort of trying to deal with people when, you know, they're having their worst day. And I think that's sort of, you know, a lot of that around empathy and and how you sort of treat people and also just dealing with people across the, across the board from, you know, CEOs or chairs down to, you know, people in terrible circumstances across the community. And I think it's sort of um, with that you got to, you learn to listen a lot. You know, that was the job to sort of listen more than you spoke. And I think that sort of probably set me up well for corporate affairs when I went to a little um, startup, ourcommunity.com.au, basically running comms and media marketing. And, you know, we did everything there. We swept the floor, we cleaned the toilets, we licked envelopes. Um, it was really after, after having people to do all that at the Herald Sun to go back to the very basics. It was probably one of the great lessons that I had in life of, you know, you had to work hard to get revenue in the door, to generate ideas. And then coming to the AFL, um, it's amazing the amount of issues that you deal with in a day, let alone a week or a month. Mm. Uh, It's quite extraordinary. It's sort of, you know, when you've got um, not only the players, you know, 800 male players and uh, 400 female players now, but the clubs, you also sort of have accountability really for footy at every level. Yeah. And when you've got a couple of million people either playing or participating and millions watching, it's um, stuff happens. So, yeah, I think all the way along it's sort of I've, I've managed to find my way into crisis or issues management uh, a lot. Hmm. And it's, you know, at Bastion it was, it was sort of building a business out of it for, for four and a half years. With that experience then, Walsh, what's been the sort of things that have really sort of set you up for the last few years in particular is, you know, when you're looking at those challenges and the issues that you're talking about and how, you know, the frequency and the volume, you know, how do you go about triaging through those things? I think for starters that you see no matter as an organisation that you work for is that bad things happen to good organisations, bad things happen to good people. So no matter what you do or whatever, is that at times things happen either through mistakes made by humans and people sometimes make the wrong call. It's been different over the last couple of years in an event that sort of none of us had really worked with before, which is a pandemic, Mm. and going into that with very little idea or experience of having done that before. I think the main thing, like I suppose with every crisis or issue, is trying to understand as much as you can and getting as many of the facts as you can, I think the better decisions are made with the more knowledge that you have. And certainly fortunate in that regard, working with Gillan McLaughlin, is that I don't think there was anything written about COVID at the start. You know, if we go back to sort of February, March 2020, Mm. he hadn't read or researched or looked at or asked people. And that sort of, you know, that search for knowledge or that curiosity to find out as much as you can to be able to make the right decisions on and to try and understand as best as you can. 
you know, the scope and how long it's likely to last or what impact it's likely to have. I think the, um, you know, the things that we probably worked on, on on some of the things that we did together is about health and safety. You know, the welfare of people was certainly the guiding principles that we had going through COVID was basically one that um, the health of players, staff and the wider community was paramount. Yeah. Nothing more important. We, we said pretty early on we were a game, but we weren't the main game. And the main game was actually protecting the community. So, you know, I know we take ourselves a little bit too seriously or, you know, a bit self-important at times, but football wasn't the main thing. The main thing was ensuring that as a community we were safe. Yeah. And part two of that was ensuring that everything that we did was in line with either the government advice or the advice of the health authorities. Yep. Again, that we weren't bigger or above anyone or didn't sit above anyone. We were the same as the rest of the community and that we stuck to the regulations and the restrictions as outlined by governments because if we didn't, then we put both our players and staff at risk and, more importantly, we, we could put the wider community at risk. So that was certainly um, health and safety was and, and welfare was you know one of the key elements for, for sure of what we're looking at. It's funny going over some of the communications at the start, say March, April 2020, is that we're basically that they haven't changed much. Yeah. So we started as we wanted to finish. And the things that were important then are the things that are important now. And I think that's one thing that I've learned over time is trying to actually sort of whatever the messaging or positioning that you're using is that it is consistent over time and that it stands the test of time. So that when you look back in a year, you look back and say, well, we actually, that the positioning was okay and it's consistent with what we're saying now. How important is that to you know, reflect then on what your purpose and the values are in defining that end game that you're really talking about there? This might sound a really simple or basic, but I, but I think it's another thing that I, I learned sort of early on in issues management is that if you do the right thing, the comms is really easy. Yeah. You know, and sometimes you have to, as a comms person or as a issues management person, you have to explain that comms is not the most important thing. It's let's actually make sure that everyone's safe. Let's make sure that we're doing the right thing. Now, people will argue as to what the right thing is, but you're led by your values, organisational values. And I think it's sort of for most organisations, where you can come unstuck is what is that the words that you say don't reflect your values or your actions don't reflect the values. So it's important that um, I think, and that was the other guiding principle at the start of COVID, was that we said what we did and we did what we said. We weren't saying one thing and doing another. We were trying to, and, you know, you don't always get it right. We're like everyone, we're not perfect, but you try and do the right thing and then I, I do think when you're trying to do the right thing and taking actions that reflect the values of the organisation, then communicating those was easier, not, not easy, because sometimes we're really direct and a lot of the news that you're delivering is not good news. Yeah. But again, you're sort of trying to, you know, not weasel or, or we sugarcoat it. explaining what we're doing mm. and you're explaining, you know, the why was really important, not just the what explaining, you know, why we were doing something and trying to make sure that we were, for many things, the single source of truth. So people would speculate on what could happen or what should happen or what was going to happen, and then it was up to us to actually say what did happen or what was happening. 
doing that at a time where you had the best information to be able to make those decisions and not really being rushed. One of the things that we did, I think, did really well, and again, this is led by Gil, he should take all the credit for it, was that over-communication with our key stakeholders, with players, with clubs, presidents and CEOs, and ensuring that, you know, during those early days of COVID, we were having phone conferences with the CEOs every single day, sometimes twice a day and, and sometimes three times a day, so that whenever there was anything new that we had that we shared, and so you're sort of as open and transparent as you as you can be and sharing as much information as you can. And sometimes it's not as much as people want um, and it's not the information they want. But I think when you're, when you're explaining as to the reasons why you're making those decisions or saying what you're saying, it's a lot easier for people. Was there a real crunch time for anything at the start of last year when this was going down? I think I had a real privilege to sit in on a conversation in Gill's office, a phone call with Peter Gordon and Eddie Maguire, which has been detailed in articles in a book. Um, it was the Wednesday where we were trying to make a decision on whether the season started or not. And Gill had rung Eddie and Peter and there was a debate, one of the most intellectual respectful, thoughtful debates that I've ever listened to where Peter was talking to the health and safety and why we shouldn't go ahead and Eddie was talking to the history of football and that football had gone through world wars and uh, the Great Depression, basically everything that we'd been through as a country is that the game had actually helped people get through. It was incredible because at each twist and turn, I could feel myself moving to one (laughs) part of the argument or the other And it was just one of those things where you sort of look back and certainly didn't realise at the time and probably only in retrospect and really only at the end of last year when you sort of reflect back on that discussion and have, you know, two people who are absolutely passionate about the game and passionate about community and who are sort of trying to get to the best outcome for footy and from two completely uh, divergent views And that day in itself is that I remember, I think we called a press conference for about 6.30 or might have been 7. And I reckon we turned up there at about quarter past eight or something. And it was only 15 minutes before that Gil had moved and gone one way and the other. And the federal health authorities had said we should start. The chief health officer said we should start. And it was that decision went right down to the wire. And in the end, sitting there and said, well, Gil, if you said go, what would you say? And we had two, obviously, comms done for whatever the decision, and he just described as to why we should play, and we just tapped it all out and said, let's go, and that was it. That was a really tough day, and that was probably, of all the decisions that I saw or was involved in, I think that was the toughest of the lot. And then by the Sunday It was a decision to stop the competition until we got a handle on COVID and then we eventually started again and then ended up in Queensland. And there was another period this year where we went really close to games not being played Mm. up in Queensland, but, um, you know, where you sort of had a team on the tarmac to fly out, plane heading into Brisbane, four teams there, and then Queensland closing down all sport. That that was a tough day. It sounds like a military operation, mate. (laughs) <laughs> we should have got you involved in that. Cheers. Hurry up and wait. <laughs> so 
So, I mean, you said about the privilege you had of being in that moment. You know, your role in those sort of moments, can you describe then the importance of the role that you bring in bringing those stakeholders together and identifying those sort of critical decision makers and how you can facilitate that engagement between them in your role? Oh, look, I, I wouldn't overstate my role. I, I think the best thing that we saw over the last two years is at the AFL, Gil led unbelievably, but he also drew together the team as a team. You know, everyone had their role to play in various areas. And it's, uh, you know, whether it was dealing with government, dealing with uh, clubs, players, developing protocols, the head of procurement became one of the most important people in football in his ability to get planes within a couple of hours, suddenly find 200 hotel rooms, yeah. buses, gyms, ovals, etc. Everyone had a role to play. And I suppose for my my role or my team in that stage is to try and talk to it how it is or, you know, talk truth to power, which is a lot of the corporate affairs role for any organisation is to, you know, provide some insight as to where you think the conversation is, where it's going. But often it's sort of, you know, like I, I think comms can be overplayed in terms of its importance. Again, if I come back to what I said earlier, if you do the right thing, my job's pretty easy or, or the job of my team. If you make the right decisions, the job of comms is a lot easier. And I think to that point in that day in Queensland, which is the first time I'd heard Gil say, I think we're in a bit of trouble here. And, you know, there's probably a dozen of us on the call. Queensland was going into lockdown and there's a press conference on or just about to start. And we were getting in the moment information from the press conference. I was in contact with one of the guys in Queensland who was at the press conference and asking him to ask the chief health officer for, you know, whether we could get a plane in the air, whether we could get the other clubs out. And so she'd come off the stage and we'd get an answer to uh, what was happening and then the press conference would continue. We'd have to wait a bit longer to get a response as to whether we could get a plane to land and, you know, the Melbourne was flying up there and then we were going to divert it to Perth and then to Canberra. Mm. If we had a you know, diverted to either Canberra or Sydney to stop, it would have meant that we would have had trouble getting it back into Perth the following week because it had stopped in Sydney. Um, and eventually it was able to land in, in Brisbane, fly back to Melbourne. They played the next day. Clearly it didn't do Melbourne any great harm. <laughs> but that day you looked at it and said, we were so probably match fit in dealing with issues and, you know, changes in government restrictions and guidelines and lockdowns and protocols is that you just work through the what we did know, what yep. we had to do, and then as more information came in then decisions were made. And within an hour and a half, uh, the head of procurement had found two planes, two crews, We'd got hotel rooms in Tassie. We'd got more rooms in Melbourne to be able to bring four teams out of Queensland. It was quite extraordinary as to the, it was probably the calmest meeting I'd been in. So it was the biggest, one of the critical points and it was the calmest. And we just worked logically through the issues. And it was an incredible team, you know, Gil, Andrew, Dylan, Travis Old, Travis' brother, Rob Old, who was in charge of sort of the football element of the club's you know, Michael Thorne from procurement, Marcus King, the fixturing guy who had to then find different grounds in different states to be able to play the games on the Sunday. Across the whole team, it was a it was extraordinary in that um, people were jumping off calls to check in with venues and broadcasters and clubs, and then coming back and as to what we could and couldn't do. 
I think Simon Goodwin might have uh, slept through most of the drama on the plane. <laughs> we kept going to sort of get the pilot to announce where they were going and then it kept <laughs> every five minutes. So but that, but that was the one where, as a team, the quality of the people that you work with and the trust in each one to deliver their element of the plan and you never had any doubt that the people that you were working with were going to deliver on what they said they were going to. That trust is such a crucial thing, isn't it? Because yeah. you, know, you can't micromanage every aspect of these things. So having that match fit and prepared and well-drilled team becomes so crucial. I mean, how much confidence do you take from those sort of things now to everything that's going to happen in the future? Yeah, I think uh, the one thing I would say that was really important and can't state enough is the collaboration of the clubs and the players, the AFLPA, the 18 clubs, you know, from presidents, CEOs, football managers, coaches, captains. It was quite extraordinary because in the end, you're, you're asking people to move sometimes on an hour's notice, you know, two hours notice and they've been away from home for seven weeks or nine weeks or case of Sydney and GWS for even longer than that. People are trusting you that the decisions that you're making are the right decisions in the circumstances. And I think the thing that we always did, which was another guiding principle, was that we took risk off the table every time we could. Yep. So, so whenever it looked as though a state could go into problems or other states would close their borders to it, we would move ahead of time because you're getting from other states that they were concerned about, say, they were concerned about New South Wales or Victoria. So where we did, we moved. And we just up and move people. And we a couple of times, I think we moved Fremantle out of WA. And in the end, they could have played in front of a full crowd at Optus. And we'd move them out. Another time, we moved Adelaide out. And I think Port Adelaide as well. And then we moved them back about three days later. So there's sometimes when we moved when we didn't have to. But we were saying to people is that we were trying to maintain that flexibility and agility because it, it was not only about what happened this round. It was because of the quarantine issues and the restrictions. It would matter as to what happened next week or the week after. So it had a flow-on or a domino effect. So we had to be making decisions in the minute that would sort of last and make sense in two weeks or three weeks' time. You know, the decisions early, like last year to go to a 17-round season yeah. to reduce the time of the quarters gave us flexibility you know, there are a number of things that we did to take risk off the table both last year and, and this year. So we sort of had a sort of conservative risk setting that if we thought something was going to be a problem, we tried to move ahead of it becoming a problem and, and getting locked into a state or locked out of a state. But, yeah, trust was trust was enormous. And the, the team, to, to your point, and that was a really long way of answering, but the thing is that in the end you're making decisions in minutes that would have previously taken three commission meetings <laughs> and six months of negotiations with clubs. Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that we're doing a fixture, you know, to give you an idea this year, we normally announce a fixture and there might be a couple of minor changes during the year. So it's one fixture for AFL, one for AFLW, a couple of minor changes. We would have done somewhere around 120 fixture updates this year we'd sort of put out a fixture and then there was a change because it's either games had to move states or yeah. move times or um, so it was sort of a constant thing. And I think it's the team was just incredibly match fit and there was no panic. It was just calm. And, you know, those we had like everyone does in those situations, you have some pretty silly conversations. I remember <laughs> one on a Saturday night at about 10 o'clock 
After (laughs) one of those weekends, well, sometimes you sit on the phone. There were some calls, and like I wasn't in all of them. There was a set team that did a lot of the heavy lifting, so I'm not overstating my role in it. But there was one heavy weekend where we're just changing a lot, and it was sort of pretty complicated. And so you're just sort of throwing ideas, and then in the end, we're just sitting there and gone for about an hour and a quarter or something. In the end, it just got silly because you just need (laughs) need to have that. (laughs) Police. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you know, I don't think the meeting lasted much longer after that. But it was I think the team was really good. Again, Gill and the leadership team, you know, Travis, Andrew, Dylan, Steve Hocking last year, you know, were really good. Kylie Rogers, Tanya, Hosh, Sarah. The, the, just everyone was good in sort of keeping the mood of the place up. Tart. Um at a time where we were asking people day after day after day after day. Yeah. To, to present and do their best. How did you guys manage your fatigue levels throughout all that? I mean, it was there's never a great deal of bench capacity in any organisation, let alone when you're flat out like you have been. Uh, how do you guys manage that fatigue level? Well, I think it was one where, again, with Gillen from the commission down, they actually cared about people and not just our energy levels but the clubs as well. I mean, Gil's constant measure, uh, constant thing was you need to look after yourself and your team. Like if you need to take the day or a couple of days or disappear off the grid or whatever, just do it, we'll pick up the slack. Yeah. I think for my own team, you know, because comms was involved and government was involved every single day and it was pretty relentless, is that we had a thing where we'd just say, if you're having a shit day, don't fight it. Mm. Don't, don't fight it. Do the bare minimum to get through don't operate any heavy machinery. Don't take any money out of the bank. Don't <laughs> the shit day, yeah. and that's okay. Yeah. We're all going to have them, and we did. I I benched myself at one stage, and I told the team this. I'd had a an exchange with a couple of mates in media over something which is a minor issue, which at that point in time I felt was a much bigger issue, and in the cold hard light of day, looking at it. You know, I'd overreacted and, you know, I apologised and benched myself, took a day off. Good. Said, you know, like you're not thinking, I, I just wasn't at my best. So you sort of had to say to the team that um, it doesn't matter where you sit, is it at times, I didn't follow my own rules, basically. Yeah. So, a bit of a, you know, having a bit of a cranky pants day and, and, uh, <laughs> and let it show. So you sort of had to, you know, Thankfully, people that I have a lot of time and respect for and a fair bit of history. So you're sort of able to recover from it. But it's just a reminder that um, everyone else has got their own stresses and strains. Mm. you got to make sure that you're, you know, when you're sticking a bit of wood in a bike wheel, that it's for the right reasons. Yeah, yeah. And I think the challenge there is that um, the stresses of that whole situation means that, you know, we often as leaders tend to go harder and harder and harder. And if you don't sort of have that pause or that support network around you, it can be, you can get sucked into it pretty heavily, I think. Yeah. And you sort of look, it's it's one of those things is is understanding, you know, the rest of the community was doing it bloody hard. So I think that was a part of our messaging all the way along is trying to ensure that, you know, we we let people know that we knew that they were doing it much much tougher than than we were. We were still able to get a season away last year and again this year. 
So a lot of people that were off work that weren't able to work for whatever reason stood down or couldn't work from home, you know, we're, we're trying to work and homeschool and things like that. Is it the challenges that we had were certainly no greater than the challenges that everyone has in their own life? And I think that's just sort of making sure, as I said, we were a game, we weren't the main game. And I know people were grateful that there was footy on because we're, during lockdowns it provided a source of entertainment or release from people. But, you know, we're not like the frontline workers or the health workers or, you know, those people at a time who were putting themselves in great danger to actually ensure that we could shop or we could go to a hospital or we could get tested. Or So I think that um, also understanding your place in the world, it's, it's football. We're not health workers. We're not doctors, nurses. Basically, their work was what allowed us to actually be able to play a game. And, you know, I think we're forever grateful for those people on the front line for, for what they did. We certainly are. What advice would you give to people around crisis leadership given the stuff you've learnt over the years and also in these last two years living through these crises? I think it's sort of the basics, you know, probably we've talked about at the start, Chiz, is that one thing is sort of understanding the facts or getting as clear a picture as you can of things. And I think that that's... Um, I think really sort of enabling people to actually tell you the truth and the whole truth. I think with most sort of crisis management or issues management, as you know, it's it's when you get into it and you make calls or you take positions and then you find out that someone hasn't told you everything or you've missed a part of it. So it's sort of ensuring that people aren't scared to tell you the whole truth and to provide all the information because if you know about it, you can deal with it. Deal with it, yeah. If you don't know about it, you can't deal with it. And the other thing I find, it's a, like for any issue, I think, and it's not necessarily with COVID, it's just a general view that I have, is that you either deal with issues or let them define you. As I said, it, bad things happen to good people. Mm. Everyone makes mistakes. And when it happens, is that people will actually cut you slack if they see that you're dealing with it in an appropriate values-led or values-driven way. I suppose the other thing is to not be afraid of the truth and actually telling people and explaining just what is happening and the situation, not trying to sugarcoat it. I mean, this goes without saying, but don't lie. Mm. <laughs> Probably the three rules of issues management is don't lie, don't lie, don't lie. <laughs> it seems like sort of saying breathe, breathe, breathe. Yeah. But, yeah. It's, but it's one for constantly you sort of see things where people have taken a position or said something and you get through the crisis on day one and on cross on day 17, it's a much bigger crisis because you've, you know, you've been economical with the truth. Mm, yeah. That's the thing. And also, I suppose that, you know, if I go back to it, doing the right thing and then the comms, any of the communications actually is, a, is an easy output of it. How do you balance that, that sort of desire for that truth, the facts versus the impetus of getting something out? I mean, there's always going to be that challenge around time. I mean, how do you sort of balance that? Look, I think it's a, it's okay to tell people that you don't know everything. I mean, anyone that knows me knows that is absolutely true. I don't absolutely don't know everything. I don't know many things. But, <laughs> but I think it's sort of one where you have to draw people to you as the ones that are going to communicate or be the single source of truth. Mm-hmm. So that's even if you're gathering people to say, here's what we do know, you know, A has happened, we know B, C and D. What we don't know is either what we're going to do next or we're still working through or we're gathering facts, you know. And even if it's sort of to regularly update people, 
that you're working through the process, but you still haven't got a solution or you're not, you haven't fully worked out what you're doing. You draw people to you as the as the ones that actually know what's going on. Because there'll be plenty of people that want to fill the gaps or experts who say, here's what they should have done, here's what they could do, here's what I'd do, or whatever. So I think that's constant communication but it doesn't mean making up something to communicate because sometimes it's to say you know what I'm updating you that the only update we have is no update you know we've we're still doing a b or c that I think is it's important to continue to have that communication but don't be afraid to tell people that you don't you haven't got all the answers like to be honest and not to guess or to say what you think people want you to say because you can often you know, there's more information comes in and you find that it's exactly the wrong lever that you've pulled. Mm-hmm. And then you're in a position where it's a lot harder to actually change course. So I think that thing of sort of talking in language that actually gives you optionality and gives you gives you flexibility. And that doesn't mean to, you know, weasel your way through, but it is to be honest about what you can say, but also honest about what you don't know or you can't say. Do you think there's any bad spokespersons or just poorly prepared spokespersons? I think it's always a preparation. You know, there's some people that are quite brilliant at it and are really good on their feet. You know, I look at it at the moment, say, Jerome Weimar. Yeah. I think he's a really good communicator. He always is calm. He's very direct in his communications. I don't know him. I, I don't. But just watching him, I think he's got a really good style. But for me, it's always the preparation. As a comms person, I always feel it's a failure if someone that I'm briefing gets a question that I haven't thought of or that I haven't seen coming. Yeah. The preparation practice or the purpose, you know, what are you what are you there to do? And sometimes we communicated through COVID and it was just to sort of tell people that it was okay. Yeah. We didn't know all the answers, but it was okay. We we're going to be all right. It would be, well, why are we doing this? We don't really have anything new to say. I said, but we just want to let people know that we're in control as much as you can be in control of a situation that we have no control over. <laughs> so it's, it's sometimes it's just to actually give people the confidence that you're working towards a solution. You don't have all the answers. I think the preparation, not everyone's, a, you know, got your movie star, good looks or <laughs> uh, yeah, not, not everyone, it's not their stage or, or they're very good in front of a room of a 1,000, but in front of three cameras, they sort of lose it a little bit. But I think where you see most people will forgive style if there's substance. Mm. So if you've got a message and you're trying your best to provide the information, I think most people are a bit forgiving that you may not be the best media performer out there or whatever. I think where people don't like is where they think someone is either hiding information or is you know, has got one line and they just repeat that one line again and again and again and again and it drives people nuts because it sounds as though you're not actually sort of trying to help them to better understand or to to give them knowledge. So I think it's sort of the important thing is in the preparation and to understand clearly what the message is. What is the purpose of your communication or what is the reason that you're standing there? What do you need people to know? How do you deliver that? And then you want to make sure that you keep coming back to those key messages, but not in a repetitive way, which I think often shows disrespect for the audience that you're trying to talk to. And our audience is the public. Mm. 
So you're sort of trying to make sure that every time we spoke, we we're speaking through the media often, but we're speaking to our supporters and trying to talk to them directly about what was happening or what we thought could or would or, or, or should happen. And they were amazing, I think, in giving us the space to be able to not always be sure about what we're doing or, you know, our supporters, our footy supporters are amazing, amazing breed. It's incredible the connection and the belonging that members have and supporters have for their team. And it's a relationship. It's not a transaction. And I think they were, you know, they don't barrack for the AFL, but they look for us to be able to provide the information that allows them to follow their teams. And um, I think they were fantastic in sort of giving us the space at times to not always be on top of it. But I think they at least acknowledge that we we're trying to get it right. Yeah. No, it's certainly the case. You can see, I suppose, probably there was some challenging commentary at different stages when rugby league went pretty fast on a recovery or a return to return to play. So did that sort of pressure you guys in other ways, those external sort of pressures come in? You know, I know when I was at media, the whole competition or, you know, <laughs> someone as the kids say, versing someone else. I know New South Wales friend. versus Vic, yeah, yeah, Vic versus WA at the moment, the whole lot, so... <laughs> My mum will kill me for saying versing, but the kids use it. <laughs> but um, <laughs> my teachers will. It was a time where you're sort of so busy looking after your own stakeholders. Back at that stage, mm. our main thing was about keeping everyone solvent because, mm. you know, like when we stopped, there was, you know, all the finance, you yeah. know, the basically stopped. So it was finding the line of credit that Ray Gunston and Gill and others did um, organised which was an amazing piece of work that sort of enabled the clubs to understand that they had coverage and that we would guarantee their finances, basically. The reality of those situations are that the, you spoke before about the health and safety component being a, a critical part, but often the consequential impact that if yeah. not dealt with quickly is a liquidity issue. Yeah, the liquidity was, um, you know, obviously it was driving everyone because as mm. Directors of all the clubs that they had a fiduciary duty, and we had to support that. We couldn't support it without a line of credit. So once we, once you had that, and then you know, Gill and others were able to renegotiate with the broadcasters, and Kylie Rogers did it as head of commercial. Her and her team did an amazing job with our sponsors, who also were incredible. The commercial partners um, and their commitment to the game. Mm. It was extraordinary. So as a, as a whole ecosystem, people actually came together and gave up a little bit. But it was also to ensure that, as you say, the liquidity that we're able to, to know that we could keep the industry going and we could finance it. And then once you did that, it was then a case of sort of working out the protocols to ensure that we're able to safely continue. Our complexity is that we're a weekly game played across every state and territory in the country. Rather than working with one or two jurisdictions, we were working with all governments and all the various lockdowns and yeah. restrictions and testing. And, you know, we did something like over the two years, we've done something like 90,000 COVID tests. Yeah. We've booked something like 140,000 hotel rooms, 300 charter flights, and continued to play over the two years, not all, but, you know, we got the games in Hobart away, you know, it's like taking Dreamtime 2020 to Darwin and yeah. 2021 to Perth. Mm. It was hard. But I, I think um, people would be surprised how much the main sports actually work together and support each other. And if you had a look at the protocols across probably the five or six major sports, I reckon you'd find a fair bit of similarity. 
<laughs> versus plagiarism. <laughs> you actually support each other at various stages, you know, when you're in trouble, you know, other sports are there to help you. So you sort of compete, but you you need each other. You know, we're, Australia needs more sports, not less. It needs more choice, not less. And competition is a good thing. It forces us all to be better. So I think it's sort of, you know, they did it a, a different way and they got it away. It's like this this year, the NRL getting the grand final away, which is a great thing. Yeah. Great thing for Queensland. It's a great thing for sport. And I know they had a similar feeling about us as well because you sort of, the more that we're getting sort of trying to normalise sport again and crowds, then hopefully as we enter 2022, it makes it easier for government and community to feel safe and and for others and for us to be able to get crowds back at the footy. So I think the competition's a bit a bit overblown. We need each other, and certainly the major sports have collaborated and supported each other over the over the last two years to try and get it right. Now trade periods end ending today. That might have been the bell for it just then. Is <laughs> uh. Any, uh, what's on the horizon now for what do you sort of see is happening now over the next sort of 12 months? Do you get a bit of a respite now or is it really just gearing up for the next slog? Not, not really. It's a, it's the, in some ways the season's actually easier than the, than the off season. Yeah. In that it, the week has a rhythm to it. You know, the games, nine games a weekend or with a W7 games a weekend has a rhythm to it. So even despite COVID, there's a bit of a rhythm to the week. Look, there's a lot of there's a lot of tired people walking around, you know, not in the AFL because we're not allowed in. But it's also there's a lot of things that we've got to do to get right ahead of 2022. So there's a lot of planning, there's a lot of work going on, you know, on vaccination policies. Um, we've got AFLW season, which is really exciting. You know, season six starts in early January, and then we build up to the end of next year to have all 18 teams playing AFLWs, which is massive. It's massive, yeah. Really exciting. So, you know, we've got to get community footy back up and running and support the volunteers and the local clubs and local leagues. You know, I know that's one close to your heart and your dad's, Hmm. but it's one where it's a real priority for us to get community footy. That's been really hard hit. And we don't want to lose, you know, those kids that haven't been out of the house for the best part of two years. We need to get them back engaged in sport, whether it's AFL, whether it's football, Australian football, NRL, soccer, basketball, athletics, it doesn't matter. We're just got to get people out active and engaged in their community again. I think that our local clubs and leagues have a massive role to play and we've got a big role in supporting them to be best placed to play it. So that's that's a big piece of work that's got to get done. Um, and it's exciting because it's sort of you want – community clubs to jump out of the blocks next year and yeah. the yeah. volunteers not to feel daunted by the, you know, by what's ahead of them and to know that where we can, we'll try and make it as easy as we can. Yeah. I'm sure they're going to, um, they'll be welcoming that with open arms for all the conversation I'm having within our footy communities as well. So we're looking forward to that and hopefully we can start to see some real positive advice for the kids in their sport now. Now, normally I uh, ask one last question, but I'm going to do sort of a bit of wrap-up first and then, and then hit you with that last one at the end there, if that's all right, mate. But um, firstly, I think it's been an amazing conversation today and, and importantly talking about empathy and about your origins in journalism and how that sort of really forced you to look for the truth in those situations. So it's been great to hear how that's carried through now 
in your career and over the recent months and years, how that's really supported you and your role and the team in defining their purpose and living by those values with everything we've done or everything they have done rather as part of the crisis response over the last few years. So Brian, thank you so much for those insights. And normally though, I do ask that one last question, You've certainly seen some great examples of great crisis leadership over the last few years, but if you could go back in time, pick one leader that you could sit down and have a coffee with and just explore what went on in their minds in certain moments in history, who would that crisis leader be and why? That's a really good question. I've got a great interest in politics. So I'd love to sort of talk to a lot of politicians that sort of came to big decisions, whether it was going to war or whatever, I reckon Churchill, I don't necessarily agree with his politics, but he just, I reckon that would have been an extraordinary conversation or series of conversations at various stages of his career as well Mm. and dealing with some of the biggest decisions of our time and the sort of the weight that that necessarily had on him. I think I've been lucky in talking to a number of leaders over the last and consulting to a number of leaders and you get to see people who are often at their best when their organisation is at their worst. Yeah. I think that's a pretty amazing thing to watch, to see people who take on that mantle and are prepared to make those decisions, Yeah, who step into the breach. I like sort of those people. You don't always agree with the decisions, but you sort of their ability to make a decision uh, against really harsh timelines or obviously anything that sort of involves making decisions to put the country to war or whatever, massive decisions. The other one, actually, just because I think it would be an amazing conversation, I'd love to hear Obama sort of talk through some of his stuff, mainly because I think he's a he's one of the great orators. So it'd be interesting sort of, you know, sitting there on his back porch with a cigar and a glass of whiskey to, to listen to him. But um, there are also a number of guys in, uh, you know, across police and emergency services, you know, that you'd like to sort of talk to I think I think if I look at um you know say Shane Fitzsimmons who led New South Wales through their bushfires is it looking at him is it you know the way that he led through that entire period I found quite inspirational and gave you comfort every day yeah I think just watching him every day stand up sort of gave you a, a comfort that that was in the best hands yeah. and his sort of ability to relay that information with massive empathy but also with strength I think I go back one other that I often use as, as an example is where Anna Bly with the the floods in Queensland. Yeah, she was tremendous actually. Yeah, good. Yeah, good example. I, I saw that, and that was a you know probably where you come to that thing of actually controlling the conversation is that she stood up every morning and every night mm. for about two weeks, giving you know what was an incredibly tough period, and you could see her sort of physically flagging through that period. And I thought, again, whatever your politics are, that's someone who sort of led with great strength and great empathy. And um, I've not had the pleasure of sort of talking to her about that situation, but it'd be it'd be a great conversation to hear how she, you know, how she went herself through that. Yeah, yeah it definitely would be. Well, this has been a great conversation to hear how you've gone through the last few years and, and over an amazing career and look forward to continuing following on, mate. So thank you very much for your time today on Crisis Talks. Thanks, Chief. Can I just say one thank you, and that's to your old man, Peter. Yeah, you sure can. He kept me alive when I was a little baby VFA reporter and he had to <laughs> in Bay Street, Port Melbourne, and I went to interview him more than most because every time I interviewed him, I left with about half a dozen lamb chops. <laughs>
living in a share house in uh, North Carlton at the time. He was a complete hero. He would have had the uh, Eat More Meat T-shirt <laughs> on, which would have been bulging under his guns because he always has been fit. He's still super fit. He was a wonderful man, but he was, a, he was yeah, he was fighting fit. Yeah, he's, uh, look, he's fighting. He's still fighting relatively fit at the moment. He had some trouble, but um, yeah, I remember actually coincidentally when I was at home well before lockdown, I found an article in his bag. He keeps a lot of his old articles, which was an old blue. It was in blue ink, and he'd, he'd retained that and covered it. And so looked at it, and here it was by yours truly, Brian Walsh. <laughs> he was a good interview subject. <laughs> I never left empty-handed. That's sensational. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us on Crisis Talks and, and look forward to, as I said, continuing to follow your success in the future. So thank you. Thanks, Drew. In my next episode of Crisis Talks, we talked to the Managing Director of Toll Group, Thomas Knudsen. Over the last two years, he's led the business through bushfires, cyber attacks, COVID both internationally and here in Australia, and supply chain disruptions across the world. This is a fantastic insight into some of the challenges that the global supply chain faces and the importance of adaptive leadership and resilience in the face of such adversity.